Bienvenidex to Merendiando from Radio Luna Theater. This week, our guest is Kim Senclip Harvey. Kim Senclip Harvey is a proud nation member of the Silk and Silkatine Nations. She's a fire creator, an indigenous theorist and cultural evolutionist who uses a variety of modalities including playwriting, TV writing, blog and podcasting to work towards the equitable treatment of her peoples. In this episode, we talk about the fire creation methodology, Salish earthing, her thesis work called Break Horizons, healing lodges, and what it means to be a cultural evolutionist. Let's get into it. Hi, Kim Senclip Harvey. Welcome to the Merendiando podcast. Why? Thanks for having me. Hello, hello, Julita. Yeah, we're really excited to have you on. Thank you for being here. Um, let's just dive right in off the top. We would love to introduce people to you and your work. Um, and we wanted to start by asking you about some terms that you use to describe yourself. So you've said you're more comfortable being referred to as a cultural evolutionist rather than a director, actor, or writer, and all the other crafts that you do. On your podcast, you've said, I have no desire to be part of the dehumanizing industrial revolution and that those labels can be dehumanizing, the labels of director, actor, writer. So for people who aren't familiar with this term of cultural evolutionist and of your work, can you give your definition of the term indigenous cultural evolutionist? For me, being a cultural evolutionist and why I landed on that term was because it was an accurate reflection of what I was doing. I don't ever think I ever said I was a director or a writer. Those were imposed upon me because of a system, because of a sector. And actually, Dr. Kim Tallbear, who teaches at the U of A, talked about the fact that these terms are used to be management tools by tactics from the state. Um, being able to easily categorize people actually allows the state to monitor us in a more easy and readable way. And I really wanted to refuse this notion that I was easy, easily categorical, easy to manage, easy to understand, because I don't think that's what the work is. I don't have necessarily a problem with the imperial or Western notions of director, writer, actor, but I don't think it was an accurate ref reflection of who I was or what I did. Mm -hmm. I thought about what it was and the work that I've been doing beyond being a professional theater practitioner, it really is, as a storyteller, my responsibilities go to the evolution of our culture. That is directly related to my protocols and responsibilities as a storyteller, as a Salish Plateau femme. Mm -hmm. For me, culture being the re religion or spirituality, the sciences, the politics, the art, the eroticism of a group of people, it's... I think at the core of how Indigenous people have had this level of survivance is that our culture was evolved from time immemorial. Through colonization and imperialism, their tactic is to sort of primordialize us, to stop us in space, to stop mm -hmm. us in time, to make sure that we don't meet the present moment, to make sure that our capacities aren't built to ensure that we can beat colonialism. And I think as a state tactic tool, as a storyteller, as a rebellion, as an activist, as a person who has responsibilities to the future generations, I have a responsibility to evolve and participate in the evolution of culture to ensure the survivance, continuance, and flourishing, the thriving nature of indigenous peoples of the Salish Plateau culture. So cultural evolution for me is about not just being an artistic practitioner, but a community member, a family member, a member of the society, a member who participates in spirituality. And my contributions are to not just um, 
uphold and affirm and make sure that our existing cultures aren't lost or oppressed, but also participate in contributing to new ones to ensure that as the world evolves, as Mother Earth changes, that our culture adapts in a way that ensures our continuance for a very long time. And so I use podcasting, I use playwriting, I use blog writing, I use being a family member, I use being an activist to participate in the cultural evolution. And so for me, that's a better reflection of the fact that some days it's very kind of quote unquote glamorous where I get to be a, a writer and director and walk into the rehearsal hall and people think it's much more important than it is. Mm -hmm. And some days I'm at a longhouse or the friendship center cleaning up baby poop or putting a diaper in the garbage or helping clean the washrooms or make food or be a family member. And those are all a part of being a cultural evolutionist for me, none more important, um, none in any hierarchy. So for me, if I want to say that these are part of my practices, I think every artist should really consider what is it that we do? How do we make sure that we talk to Indigenous uh, and non-Indigenous and, and BIPOC and non-BIPOC arts, arts organizations to ensure that we can get all of our work done? And I think the secular nature of theater to say writers do this, directors do this, actors do this, mm -hmm. um, undermines a lot of BIPOC and cultural variances within the creation process. I think you're so right. And it just makes such a difference when you walk into a space and claim it, you know, and claim it through your your presence, your embodiment of your work, but also how you choose to be collaborated with. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I do find it helps people to have more of a collaborative practice or nature um, and also more of a curiosity, more of a, an understanding, because if we just accept the Western terms and the Western structures, it inherently gives them power. It inherently makes them the decision makers. It inherently makes them. I don't them need any more of that. Exactly. Anymore. Exactly. So, <laughs> how do we, in the way that we represent ourselves and come to the work, assert our power that we have? That's mm -hmm. why I go with that term as well. I love when I listen that description in your podcast too, because for me it was like it actually made made at least me question and I feel other people who listen is like what is your practice your art practice itself and why are you letting it be defined by other people or applications um when you do that and I was like okay you need to start standing up for yourself and saying who you are as an artist more than what they want you to be as an artist and going through other episodes uh, we found the fire creation methodology. And for the people who haven't listened to it, can you tell us how has your artistic practice changed since working with the fire creation methodology? Yeah, the fire creation methodology was really a collaboration between Dr. Linda Lashans and I and the, and the fire company who created Kamloopa. It was an impulse that I had to say that the way we were creating was not sufficient for indigenous femme matriarchal focused work. And how do we create a container, a process, a framework to ensure that really at the heart of it, at the core, at the, 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 the blue hottest part of the flame of that fire is a process that honors everyone's uh, entire being. We talk about a wholeness. A lot of methods say, leave your shit at the door. We don't talk about that. That's not how we work in this room. And a lot of people talk about the manipulations and the choreography we have to do just to enter into a room. That to me goes against my protocols as an indigenous person, as a Salish plateau artistic um, 
storyteller because I'm supposed to meet people and honor their wholeness. I would never, if I was going through a trade, meet somebody by the river or meet over what we were about to exchange. Say, actually, I don't want that. Don't talk to me about that. Put that part of your regalia away. I don't want to hear about your family. That would be so rude. My ancestors, like even saying that, I'm like making sure the ancestors don't think that I would ever do that. Like they would be mortified. She's just pretending you guys don't I'm worry. just pretending ancestors don't get mad at me. <laughs> But to me, it was so disrespectful. It's so against my protocol and ontology as a, as a practitioner. And so we wanted to create something to honor it. And for me, fire creation and fire has a lot of um, history and ritual within my community. This notion of, of rooting it in an indigenous practice around ceremony allowed us to, again, switch the paradigm completely around a product industrial revolution based that the most important thing is the play the most important thing is that we sell tickets the most important thing is the result for me ceremonial and artistic ceremony process is about the process being the art that moment by moment each impermanent state when we breath and when we sit here right now this is an artistic practice this is a part of ritual this is ceremony as communing together which is what fire is for my community we use it at very important you know place marks or totems in people's lives, births, deaths, uh, ceremony, um, uh, hunting, gathering. Fire really is at the heart of our people with regards to gathering. And I, I've spent a lot of time around fires. Most recently, I've been doing some sweats last summer with my cousin and my auntie sort of gifted me the girl at the fire, the woman at the fire. This name in Sokotin around what that means. And there's so much, it's, the stakes are high. Like mm -hmm. fire is hot. It is dangerous. It can burn you. It also cleans our water, gives us food, makes sure that we can eat it, keeps us warm, gives us a place to have artistic ritual around storytelling at a fire. And it takes a lot of process, you know, like chopping wood, making sure what goes in there, gathering, making sure you come with your hand full. There's nothing worse than being at a fire when uh, you're the only person getting wood and everyone just thinks the fire just kind of occurs. <laughs> And for us, it's like, how could we use that? And so we came up with this methodology of a creation process about creating a fire, the fire being the story, the fire being the process, and all of the elements of story creation practice, the play being the wood, the materials being uh, the narrative structure, uh, the process of rehearsal being us creating the fire. And that opening night or the, the, the production of it was when the fire was sort of lit. The fire was occurring. So for me, we talked about the notion that we had a fire creator, a fire starter, fire holders, and all these different elements that are still kind of living. And again, we're trying to figure out how we can apply it to the next process or a process um, and also share it with other people that we have to be mindful of what we put into a fire. We have to be mindful about who's around the fire. You don't need 10 people getting wood. You don't need, you know, piles of it. And so there was a, a particular and a deliberateness of creating a fire that we wanted to apply to Kamloopa. And we think it worked really well. Mm -hmm. It really reframed for the artists who participated in the fact that one, we were honoring them, we were acknowledging the process, and that they felt really taken care. I remember Yolanda Bunnell saying in like the first week, I've never felt so safe in a rehearsal hall. And that really that moved me. So happy. Because for me, I felt that. that you all deserve that, right? Everybody deserves to feel safe in a rehearsal hall. And for me, it's like we would say, we're never just going to chuck a piece of wood onto the fire. I'm never going to be one of those directors like, let's just try this ridiculous thing with no entry point, no care, no thought. And for me, I would never do that on a fire. If you throw something onto a fire, you got to be careful what that is, who's around, the sparks that will fly, what that will do, the entire flame, that it's so... Um, 
particular. And so for me, the fire creation methodology is something we're also talking about in my thesis work is around just creating a process that's thoughtful, that's respectful of how powerful theater is. Like stories are hot. Stories have impact. They can burn people. They can nourish us. And in the end of it, we talked about how we can honor that a fire also has to be kept and taken care of and put out. And I think something that the imperial and kind of Western uh, sector of theater creation fails at, and I fail at that too, is the post-production. How do we actually close a show? How do we do ceremony around that? And for me, there were a few things that we could, but like people, production companies, producers want to spend this zero amount of dollars once the show is open. So even culturally, it's something that I'm going to have to work for for my whole career to be like, the budget line doesn't stop on opening night. The budget line doesn't stop on closing night. Post-production and care needs to extend until those performers are okay. And I feel like the fire creation methodology worked towards getting there. And my responsibility to them is that for us, culturally, when you ask someone to come around a fire for you, there's a bond there. I have a bond to the Kamloopa company for the rest of my life and for the rest of their careers. And I take that very seriously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. There's one aspect of the methodology that we wanted to ask you about. Specifically, we wanted to ask you about the burn stage, which asks the fire creator to take a step back and trust that the cast, the stage manager, and the team hold the flame and the people around the fire need privacy. That is such a beautiful thing. And our question is, how do you build trust with your team to do this? It seems like that's a trust exercise as well as so many other things. But why is that part of the methodology? I think too often we don't trust our actors, we don't trust our designers, we disrespect stage managers' authorities, which ultimately once we leave, they're literally in charge. Stage mm. managers become the director. And that was a very important ritual for me to hand off that power from uh, rehearsal into production. That is, they are the authority. And often they are uh, femmes, females, non-binary people. And sometimes directors are often mask energy people. And there's a lack of like authority giving to them. And I found that really uh, like gender oppressive. And so for me, I was like, I really wanted to make sure that whoever was in that position had the authority to take care of the burn and that I needed to like the greatest thing that happens sometimes with fires when you let it burn and you let it do its thing it gains heat it gains momentum it it takes on a life of its own that that's the stage when you're really into a fire you can sit back and watch it for hours yeah but if you have somebody meddling who's like poking it and prodding <laughs> it and throwing rocks I get, in, I get you know, pissed I actually get <laughs> real mad Right? So I believe yeah. the actors being like, hey, director, back off. Like, give us some space. Let us burn here. Like, let us mm-hmm. have a good burn. And the stage manager will be there to put the logs back on to keep it going to make sure that they're okay. But the director, we got to get out of there. The producers, we got to get out of there. We got to let that baby burn. And that's an important stage that I'm not away, that I'm not like, hey, peace, bye. <laughs> you know, my stage managers, when it comes to trusting the team, I have all of them and and maybe I'm too mother bear about it. I have WhatsApp channels, we have Slack channels. They all text me. I start relationships months before the production. If any of the Kamloopa crew needed anything, they could call me and I would give them my life. Like I I have an actual relationship, which apparently is like not a normative behavior that directors aren't supposed to hang out with your performers, that they're not supposed to be, they're supposed to go through the stage manager. I do say studying leadership, I respect their boundaries. I always say, if you would like to speak through your equity um, representative. Yeah. Yeah. 
the, that person and, and or the SM or somebody they can, but that I'm also here, that it, that I also come with my hands full and, avail and available. And I think that really builds trust. I think too often productions start on day one, opening night, opening, opening rehearsal day and, and everything. For me, it's months right now for a break, it's years in advance. So I'm building trust years in advance with these players, with these artists, with these designers. And for me, the it's so that when it is time, I'm not like standing in a theater, like making sure so-and-so hit that syllable and so-and-so put that prop down there. That is a lack of trust. I believe in the artists that I work with so immensely. I want them to burn gloriously once I'm out of there. I went to Kamloopo a bunch of times and I didn't give any notes. That's not my <laughs> business. Like the stage manager can, that thing's got to grow. And I would say to the, the fans, I'd say, I'm here, but please don't think I'm here to correct you. I'm here to study the audience. I'm here to study the, what's happening out here. You guys got this, like you, you cats are cool. And so for me, the burn stage is also usually when the director just walks away. Mm -hmm. That they're like, my equity contract is done. I've been paid, see you later. And that to me, like, that can be pretty traumatizing for artists. Yeah. Like all of a sudden this leader is just gone. And so for me, I wanted to create a ritual around that transfer of power, that transition to ensure that people feel like their backs are being supported, that their spirits are being held. And that also it's a really hard state because it could be where some of the most like fiery aspects of the production occurs. You've got variables like the audience, you've got variables like p potentially reviewers. And so I also wanted to acknowledge that that is a particular stage of the method. Mm -hmm. Talking about post-production, the last step of the methodology is extinguish the fire. And we were wondering, I, I know you've been talking, you talked about it a little bit before, it was like, do you have an example of what a closing ceremony will look like or be like? So for in a blue sky, like if I was had the money and I had the support from the producers, the blue sky for Kamloopa would be that we would have a retreat either where that the, the last show took place, we would all fly back in just like, again, it's so ejaculatory focused on opening night. I would rather all the designers fly, fly back in for closing night and after actually have a fire or have a ritual or do a smudge. We were talking about the fact that I was saying, I was like, if it means like burning the script and sending it back up to the ancestors or taking an article of your costume, putting that into a fire of just like completely brushing you in your character's regalia, basically, and putting that to sleep. For us, I think for me in the cultural evolution aspect, there's a bunch of stuff that I was thinking about having spirit baths, having a sweat, having moments to say, I'm putting this character back into the universe. I am taking off their responsibilities and how we can do that on a large budget. And then on a smaller budget, I think it's also bearing witness to just taking people's costumes off for the last time, putting them away, doing something with the script, having a small smudge ceremony, whatever those performers need to say, your responsibility and bond with this character is now coming to an end. Of course, you will, we all, we always carry our characters with us for the rest of our life, but we have to let them go because whether people want to admit it or not, when you are a performer and you have an intimate relation with a character, things can start to get pretty challenging upstairs. You know, I was on tour for four months and this one character became my basically best friend. You're talking to them, you're thinking about them, you're trying to, and it can be, 
really complicated. And I think if we are supposed to have ethics in the sector, we have to ethically make sure that our performers are okay to take off those characters, to give them back into the ether. So for me, yeah, Blue Sky, go to a retreat and do all these rituals and have spiritual advisors, elders, the whole crew to put the show to, to literally extinguish the flame, knowing that the embers will still burn within us a little bit. And when we get memories, the wind will maybe heat up those embers a little bit, but that they're embers that we don't send people back on the after closing night on a red eye with the fire still exploding within them. That is a hard ask. There's this quote that's coming to mind that is, uh, hospitality is the beginning of ethics. And I feel like you just really talked a lot about that. Like just how the care that you can show people can actually have a tangible impact on the amount of harm they experience in theater. And there isn't just one way to do it. And you don't have to feel bad. <laughs> because yeah, I, I also do find for sure, like uh, a lot of the methods that we are told are the professional ones just actually do cause so much harm to the people around them and we're just expected to absorb it and that's yeah. what makes us a professional our resilience to absorb your bullshit and that is bullshit like yeah. that's just unacceptable it's unacceptable and i feel like our generation of arts leaders are addressing that to say we we, we understood that's what you thought the great uh, the methodology should be and we're just saying it's not it's not acceptable anymore like i can see it with some mentors of mine being like the people who's stayed with me after the process, after certain like jobs, quote unquote, those are the people who then saw me grow and get me more opportunities and teach me how to give other people opportunities. It can be done. I just feel some people don't stop and, and realize that it's more than a business. And something that I was also thinking as, as, as an artist who not only works in theater, but also TV is like, at this fire creation methodology can be applied to different mediums. Absolutely. I hear you on that, Monica, because I think what you're saying too is like you're addressing this notion and I'm really looking at directors who are like, I direct 20 shows a year. I'm like, you're a technician. You're not mm -hmm. an artist. Ouchie, ouchie. You know what I, I mean? mean? Yeah, speak it, speak it. How, I'm how could you possibly be taken care of all of those people yeah. when you're doing, to me, you're a technical capitalist. Yeah. You're not an artist. Okay, everybody who's listening out there who has a little ouchy <laughs> burn. Um, Kim, do you have any tips on how to handle burns? <laughs> burns, and I, I say that because <laughs> I want to address this notion that you can be a technical capitalist. You can, but please- Call yourself that. Call yourself that. Totally, be accountable totally. to the fact that you're participating in the industrial revolution, you're product-based, you want to make a lot of money, you are here to put up a play and not create a process, create an art or evolve culture. Just own what you're doing here. Again, I talk to the people in Kamloops and the people on break every day. A lot of them are the same, but I say like, how's it going? How are you doing? How's life? What What are you up to? Because again, if I invite them to the fire, I have a responsibility to their well-being, to their careers, to their contribution to help to how they're doing and so for me a part of helping people deal with the burn is not just burns they might have endured or received in the work that I've done but also to make sure that they're okay outside of my work to say hey I hear you doing that piece how's that going for you is there anything mm -hmm. that I can do or can I connect you with somebody do you have your supports and that also I try to set an embodied example it's why I publicly speak about you know seeing a mental health clinician as a forever, which I think everybody should be seeing somebody if they, especially if they can afford it, a mm -hmm. spiritual guider of some kind, really making 
sure that their mind, body, spirit, and engagement with their environment is a healthy, nourished, and balanced one. Because we are athletes. Like I say, I want to run my companies like the way the NFL does. They have mental health doctors. They have nutritionists. They have uh, RMTs. Like they a whole village, basically. They have a village because they know that's what it takes. Mm -hmm. And I don't think theater needs to negate themselves from that. We are asking our artists to become these superheroes. And yet we're asking them to do it for like $100 a day. Totally. That is a problem for me. That is a problem because that is if you are doing that amount of work or any work and you're not fighting for their paycheck to be higher, you're not ensuring they have what they need, and you're just pumping out shows like a factory, I think that's completely unethical. And that's causing so much damage. And yet in the Western world, that's celebrated as uh, being proficient. And I'm not into being proficient. I'm into being ethical to being caring, to being thoughtful, to being nourishing. And those are my metrics as a sales practitioner. All of that being said, and all of that being true, there's another methodology that you have developed. And there's a way that you, um, I really like that you talk about the reason that you call the methodologies and you're emblemizing them. Like it's a way of tracking your own learning over your life and not letting kind of all of that, all of that thinking just wash away and not actually emblemizing it, which I think is really great. But um, another methodology you develop called Salish Earthing. So from what we understand, Salish Earthing is based in relational responsiveness and full embodied presence. So in this methodology, once grounding is done, then creation happens. And presencing is important and related to that grounding, which is a concept that you give credit to Dr. Lindsay Lachance for. So our question is, what is the role of body memory in Salish Earthing? So body memory is like blood memory of what Monique Mujica talks about. And a lot of indigenous cultures talk about this notion is that our stories live within us. I think on a grant like 10 years ago, I talked about it like being the anthology of my blood, which was like a very colonial way of trying to express that I have an ascendancy of storytellers and memories. Literally, that's why we are the way we are, the way we look, you know, whose nose do I have? Whose hair did I get? Whose shoulders of my ancestors do I have? What belly of like my matrix did I get? We are the result and composite of our ancestors for thousands of years, like surviving and thriving. And, And we don't just get the physical attributes to our inheritance. We get, as many are studying and knowing now, intergenerational trauma, we get intergenerational joy, we get intergenerational love, we get intergenerational resilience. And I think for me, the blood memory is understanding, and they talk about it in Bonita Lawrence's Real Indians and Others, which I also do a podcast on. If you go and read that book, she talked about studying with a woman who was like, I think she was dip netting or fishing or something and that she just remembered that she had done this before and yet she had never picked up a fishing rod or a dip net in her whole life. That's blood memory. That's knowing that when you like go to braid somebody's hair or you go to do an embodied practice, you get this feeling, this almost in Sokotin, we call it guesni, this full aliveness that somehow realities and times and histories are coming to one, which is the notion of what Lachance calls presencing. Eckhart Tolle also talks about presencing a lot with regards to um, understanding that the world is timeless and that it's a construct and that we can experience many things at once. But it really is an honoring of many histories and peoples and ancestors coming together. 
And the blood memory, this blood embodied work is to say that there is so much work within you. There's so much creativity within you that if we just slowed down, took a minute, went back to the earth, did land creation methodologies, work will come to you. And for me, I want to conjure from that place. I want to conjure from going and doing a sweat, going medicine picking, creating medicine baths, uh, being on the land, going to the river, watching the way that river works. And it's really being applied to the mystics right now with regards to uh, the character's journey of returning to the land. Last summer, I spent a lot of time on the Sokotin and Hanigutin putting my body in those spaces to understand what teachings came out of that. And that literally, that methodology hells and now holds the mystics with regards to the epiphanies, transcendence, nature, and transformations that Juniper and Toast go on to by going back out onto the land. Juniper and Toast? Yeah, those are the names of mystics. Those are the character names, Juniper Mac and just Toast. Oh, so we love Toast. I'm a fan of Toast. Everybody loves Toast. And that's why they say, where'd you get that name? And it's like, because everybody loves Toast. <laughs> that's why his grandma named him Toast. Aww. So Salish Earthing is kind of in practice right now. And there's not a lot of literature around it because I'm embodying it as we create that piece now. We read in the, that in the Salish Earth thing, the result is that everyone in the artistic ceremony can contribute to their own cultural heritage. Yeah. Can you speak more about that? And it's the audience involved in that too. Yeah. So I'm even thinking about the name of being like the Salish Plateau and because that's who I am. So like the Salish Plateau methodology, Salish Earthing, this notion that when you go back to the earth or you go back to your land or you go back to a place that resonates an environment, that the stories for you are going to come and percolate. It's not about going back and replicating mine or being even on somebody else's territory and coming up with a Musqueam story. That's not what we're asking. We're saying about returning to environments by creating sort of intersections of elements and sensorality that you're going to have images, feelings, memories percolate, and those are going to be true to yourself and your histories and your culture. And I do believe that in its application, people are going to be able to create work based on this methodology that is intrinsic and responsive to who they are. So we avoid kind of a pan-Indigenous methodology, but it's actually really central to each person who does it. And so that's the hope that whatever environment is, whatever territory we're on, that it's not about appropriating or taking, but it's about even how far can we root back into the earth in the grounding stage to maybe like do um, sort of visions and dreamscapes and guided meditations to say, where's your home territory? And can I root you back to where your land is through the earth that we're standing on now? And so those are sort of aspects of the methodology that I'm working on uh, right now. That's huge. <laughs> I think it's going to be really fun. I think it's going to give a lot of people who are either refugees or people who have been positioned out of their home territories and are uh, coming here or newcomers a connectivity to who they are in a way that I think that's what I'm very interested in leading. I think that's really beautiful and important. I did this process with a company and one of the moments the director said us and we're like, tell me where you're from. Tell me what your family's from. Tell me what the far as you can remember. And we just sat in a circle and everybody's talked about where they're from and how they got to Toronto. Wow. And it, it was, I think it was really important because it, she was trying to make us like position and to be like, this is where you are now, but let's go back and let's see where we connect. And I remember the next day she grabbed me and she's like, Monica, but you never talked about what it means of you being here and what it starts now that you are here. Yeah. But what does it mean? now that you're starting 
like a, a new in quote unquote like family yep. in, in this country. And I was like, oh, I, I actually as an immigrant never stopped and thought about that. That's so important. And I I it's so important and it really is so beautiful to hear you talk about it, Kim, because that is a responsibility and a a role that only indigenous people can play. I think to me that was it that I think we have responsibilities again while we're being here to steward people's relationship with these territories. And that's really good work. Like that I would love to do that for the rest of my life because that's what my dad says, we're all here now. We're all here and we have to develop these strong relationships with respect and reciprocity to one another in the land. And I hope that's what Salish Earthing can because I do see people who are coming here sort of living on top of the land. And I think if we talk about relationalisms, we talk about creating a relationship, I think Salish Earthing can start rooting us into really understanding the people, the elements, the organisms, the stories that are here. And once we all know that's why stories are powerful. Once we get that connectivity, you protect it ferociously and fiercely. And I think that's why when we meet people who don't care or are oppressive or really violent or, or they're disconnected. And I hope that Salish Earthing provides that connectivity that we need uh, to be here with deep respect and safety. So your current project, Break Horizons. Are you involving incarcerated people in the development process of this piece? Yeah, that's really important to me. The research part of it um, and the relationship building. So I visited a healing lodge in Alberta. I visited a healing lodge out here in Staelis. I'm in conversation with people or adults who are in custody at the moment. I'm a big fan of Ear Hustle, which was actually nominated for, I think, like a Nobel Prize last year. It was one of the top podcasts. Wow, and Nobel me, Prize? Yeah, it was like a Nobel or a Pulitzer, one of those. Oh, it was one like of the one of the big ones where it was the first year for podcasts being nominated and Ear Hustle was nominated. So for me, really understanding that culture um, has been incredibly important. And it's been hard because of the pandemic. I had all these plans to go visit the healing lodges to spend time. And so now even trying to, to make those connections has been more difficult. But the pandemic has also given me time. So I'm establishing, I would say, meaningful relationships with people that I have videos with, uh, that I talk on the phone with. I read all the CSC reports with regards to uh, what's happening in our uh, to our adults who are being incarcerated. And it's really important to me. I, I get pretty emotional about it because the more I learn about people and adults who are in custody, the more I realized how fraught our quote justice system is, how horrendous their environments are, how positioned they were to never have a chance, and how the state has actually learned to weaponize trauma. Because if you look at the stats of the people who are incarcerated, it's either poverty or trauma. Oh my gosh, I'm having a wild deja vu right now. Nice. Oh, this is amazing. I've been here before. We're in a good spot. Oh, that's really wild. You were, Camille, you were in that sweater too. Then you were dead. That's wild. Talking about this, so that's a good sign. That's great. Um, yeah, for me, I think a part of break is to ensuring that people leave that ceremony, understanding that these are our family members, that these are our community members. 90% of adults in custody will be released back to the public. 90%. And right now they're being locked away, further traumatized, trauma being metastasized. When you get to even low, medium and high security level prisons, the rate of re-traumatization and new trauma is so high, people leave there worse than they went in. And it is a state 
tool a lie propaganda where we're being told that it's for our protection mm. prisons and incarceration systems are economic generators for cap for capitalism they are to lock people away and throw away the key and they have nothing to do with public safety and that's what i'm learning prisons have nothing to do with public safety and learning about the stories the real people who are in custody has only furthered my passion and the urgency for us to talk about this because the system is broke i am so honored and I am so humbled by the activists and leaders of the Black Rebellion, those looking to abolish prisons, because they are forms of torture. Solitary confinement is defined by the UN, a form of torture, and Canada still does it. And mm -hmm. that is a problem that bothers me. And so I believe that one of the greatest teachings and the greatest gifts that I have, again, when we focus on the process being the art, is meeting the people who are incarcerated, who desperately need our help and need our voice and their, and their stories amplified so they have the opportunity at justice. Because I think that if I believe I can change and that, you know, Camilla and Monica, you can change. Imagine living in an environment where nobody believed that, where you became your worst mistake. Or even when you work so hard and you meet with counselors and you meet with drug and alcohol people and you meet with spiritual elders and you're never given a shot to truly transform, I think that denies all of our humanity because that sets the precedent that nobody can change. And for me, I don't believe that. I believe we can all change and that whether we're in custody or we're in custody, we deserve that opportunity. And I firmly believe that the more and more I talk to people who are in jail. And what I understand about Break Horizons is that it's about a healing lodge as well. Is that right? Yeah. yeah so healing lodges are low security prisons f held in an indigenous framework of healing and restorative justice. Are healing lodges perfect? Absolutely not. They're still state run prisons. But I do believe the notion that they're focused on healing is a much better opportunity than the way prisons are run, where it's like you are, it's a crime and punishment system. You do the crime, you'll do the time, and there is no focus on actually healing the person as to why they got there. And to go into a healing lodge, you have to commit to the program. You have to, um, you actually have to admit to your crime because you have to be held accountable for that. The focus is rehabilitation. The focus is, is that we want to invest in you as a person to say, you know what? There was a bad time. You made a bad mistake. But with account, with ceremony, with protocol, with healing, with resources, we believe you can get out of here and be a contributing member of society. And remember, if 90% of people leave prison, I'm going to want them to go through things like a healing lodge versus anything else. And that statistic alone made me realize that things like the Healing Lodge or basically finding healers, finding spiritual guidance, finding rehabilitation in any institution is key for any op opportunity we have at a peaceful society. I do just want to say anyone who's listening here who is new to this conversation, who's new to um, talking about abolition, like here is literally an example of an alternative that isn't a prison rewind it play it back if you need to right? absolutely there's there are many systems that exist and um this one it actually costs less to me when the government talks about it being um they as a ex-government employee they're obsessed with numbers and so for me it's like when you look at the cost of how much it actually takes to people are like well, what are we going to do it's like actually there are much cheaper more effective options than prisons they're very expensive and they're actually torturous for everyone involved speaking with corrections officers parole people guards it's a very traumatizing experience for them as well prisons are bad for everybody 
literally everybody and yeah healing lodges and restorative justice models that the scandinavian countries do very well at and they have the lowest incarcerated rates in the world there are models out there that exist so it is an excuse to just think that prisons are the only option to keep us safe and that language is propaganda it at prisons make people uh they position them for more trauma and put the public more at risk it seems like from what you've shared a bit about your process with Break Horizons that Indigenous and Western science is a huge part of how you're telling the story. And I really loved following on your Instagram that that, that space guy, the Lakota space guy. Corey Gray, Corey Gray. Yeah, so Corey I'm just Delano. like, you know, oh, it's so cool. So I would, I mean, I just wanted to share, maybe if you wanted to tell that story to the people listening or just like how science is inspiring the process. Here's the distillation of it. I believe our quantum physics and astrophysicists and our elders from many indigenous cultures are thinking the same things. Quantum theory, space-time collapse, wormholes, expanding and collapsing theory. There are so many parallels between indigenous creation and Genesis stories and the humility that if you actually get to the scientists who are on the cutting edge, like at LIGO with Corey Gray, who's a Blackfoot uh, astrophysicist and his mom translates LIGO reports. So scientific reports into the Blackfoot like language, which is wild. Whereas like Instagram buddies, I'm such a, such a like work crush on him because every time he's doing something, I'm like native scientists changing the world. And Corey and I connected because LIGO was actually in Break Horizons. There's a scene where they hear this chirp from billions of years ago. And I believe that beyond colonialism, beyond imperialism, when we talk about all of our relationships to the universe, we're just like matter and literally constellational stardust having like when people say we're we're the universe having a human experience and so as much as i think it's important to honor our politics and our cultural differences which we do i think for me the notion of moving into indigenous futurism and indigenous mystical science like indigenous science is about understanding that western ontology about all of their scientific methods is not the only way to see the world and when we get to really high level people like corey gray like people working they won the nobel peace prize when the ligo detected that mm -hmm. they are they are saying we can't say we know anything and that humility to me intersects with indigenous culturalisms and spirituality and technologies because we have our Genesis stories. And I just think the crossover there is so important. Biology geeks, astrophysics geek, I, I, it's fascinating for me. In Haida Gwaii, they found this clay that has this antibacterial property that actually kills a lot of bacteria and viruses. And scientists tried to come in to take the clay and the elders stopped them. They were like, this has been something we've been using for a very long time. There's this copper breaking ceremony at the end of Break Horizons where they use copper to have a big transcendent moment. Now they're putting copper on TransLink buses in Vancouver because copper kills 99.9% .9 of the COVID um, virus within an hour. I think science and indigenous technology uh, technologies have been intersecting can be intersecting from time immemorial and i think in a time when we're being pushed apart finding areas for us to come back together and be understanding and have some level of congruency is my job as a storyteller you're so cool i'm mean, because you're the best <laughs> <laughs> i'm not i'm not cool i'm a space geek i'm a psych an art nerd like people think i'm cool but i'm not very cool but maybe that is cool <laughs> like you it. the whole you're not supposed to know Every episode, we ask our current guests to post a question to our next guest. So 
so we can keep that conversation going across borders. So you are being asked questions by our last week guest, uh, which is the host and the producer of the Possibility Podcast, Umang and Kumari. Their podcast engage in deep dive conversations with queer and trans, Black, Indigenous, people of color, artists, and possibility makers. So the first question is, how, when, and where do you feel your most authentic self? At first I wanted to be like, when I'm having really good sex. <laughs> and then I wanted to be like, when I'm out in nature. And I'm like, those are very similar. There's an, erot <laughs> there's an eroticism to that. An eroticism outside sexuality, but also with it. Like there's something about being attuned to yourself. And I find like with vulnerability within an environment and my authentic self is like when I'm doing a spirit bath and I dive into a lake and I can like, cleanse my spirit or when I'm in a sweat and I'm like in a really hard aspect of that ceremony and I'm like viscerally engaged with that moment. I feel like my authentic self. You know, my dad always talks about the fact that we have to make decisions in this life so that we're okay with who we are. Because at the end of the day, when we get returned back to our mother, when we return back to the earth, it's just us. So we better be real good with the decisions that we made. We better be real good with who we are because when we go back home, it's just you, yourself, the spirit and the universe. And so my most authentic self was just probably in those moments when I'm working to make sure that when I go on my final journey back to her, that I feel good about the decisions I made in this life. What is it that you want to receive? It's like receive and give at the same time. It's like in that relationship of reciprocity, it's peace. Like I would really like to be afforded the opportunity to live a peaceful life, to make a choice to have peace on a daily basis. That's ultimately what I'm doing here. I'm trying to tell stories. I'm trying to make decisions. I'm trying to create environments for artists where they are afforded the opportunity to have a moment of peace, a moment of respite, a, no, a moment of spiritual nourishment. And I hope that I'm honestly, and, it's, and I'm like, oh my God, I don't even think about me in that way, but that's what I would love. Like with my friends, with the decisions that I make, it's moments where people are affording me the opportunity to have a really peaceful inhale and exhale, a really comforting moment of rest, because the work that we're all doing is difficult. It is really challenging. And, and I hope to receive, I would be so grateful to receive a life, and I've received a lot of more moments of peace. I hope that you get that. I know that you will. Thanks. I've been really fortunate this year. I feel really good. So I'm, I am grateful. And we always ask our current guests to ask a question for our next guest. So, Kim, would you like to ask a question of our next guest, who is also an artist somewhere on this body of land, Turtle Island, the Americas? What would you want to ask an artist uh, here? I'm really studying memory right now for one of my classes and also for break. And so my brain goes into like is memory mode. And so and also because I love what happens when we get to talk about this. Is there a moment, a memory that brought you pure joy and ecstasy that you think about often? Is there moments of joy, like real joy that maybe, maybe it's a better way. So is there moments of joy that impacted your blood memory or your memory in a way that ignites you when you think about, you know, if it would be a partner or a friend or a, an amusement park member, something that you just go like, oh, that was a good moment. That was a good moment. So if you listen to the next episode, we'll ask that question. You'll hear the answer. I'm tuned in. <laughs> so this podcast is called Merendiando, which means snack time in Spanish, in specifically Northern Mexican Spanish, Monica's family's Spanish. We love it. <laughs> 
So what is your favorite snack right now, Kim? It could be a snack that's like a one you could eat, or it could be a book or music or a TV show, anything that's fueling you right now and that you want to share with our listeners. A snack for the soul. Honestly, it's the relationships and the missives, the stories and, and letters and conversations I'm having with the adults who are in custody. That is bringing me a lot of life um, a lot of ignition in a time where I think I would have been very depleted at this stage of the pandemic. Whenever I speak to them, they're always so generous with me. And I am so grateful for them. I'm so grateful. I also be remiss to not mention that I do love like uh, smart dogs, those like vegan tofu dogs that in the microwave with like processed cheese for 30 seconds is a dirt bag snack that will delight me for days. <laughs> so those two things, which are probably pretty on brand. <laughs> it was the official snack of Kamloop and I just never let it go. It's got a lot of protein. It's gluten-free. It's vegan. Like it just works. It's great. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being here with us, sharing this time. And I think you're pretty, pretty cool. And thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Monica. Thanks, Camilla. Thank you for having me. It was a really beautiful space. This was a moment of peace. This was really nourishing. So, from my ancestors to yours and everybody listening, thank you. Find that peace. Thank you. We are speaking to you from the shores of this beautiful Zaga Igan, known to some as Lake Ontario, in Toronto, or Dagorondo. This is the ancestral territory of the Haudenosaunee, or Longhouse Confederacy, the Anishinaabek Nation, the Wendat, and the Mississaugas of the Credit. This land is covered by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum and Treaty 13, also known as the Toronto Purchase. Araluna, we remember that people can begin to heal when they are hurt. We are committed to artful participation in disagreements. We are committed to unsettling ourselves towards connection, respect, and justice for all people who now live in this city, which has been a meeting place since time immemorial. Radio Aluna Theatre is produced by Aluna Theatre, with support from the Toronto Arts Council, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, the Department of Canadian Heritage, and the Metcalf Foundation. Aluna Theatre is Beatriz Pisano and Trevor Shellness with Sue Ballant. Radio Aluna Theatre is produced by Monica Garrido and Camila Diaz Varela. For more about Aluna Theatre, visit us at alunatheatre.ca, follow at Aluna Theatre on Twitter or Instagram, or like us on Facebook. Miigwech and Nyawangoa.